I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. He's one of my favorite people. Today we have Dr. David Eddy joining us. David is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Addiction Medicine and Recovery Research Institute, and a clinical psychologist in Mass General's Department of Psychiatry. Today, he's going to be talking to us about heart rate variability as a biomarker for alcohol use disorder and heart rate variability biofeedback as an intervention for alcohol use disorder. Dr. David Eddy, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you. Um, uh, this is going to be a great episode. Before we jump into your research and some of the things um, uh, that you're contributing to, could you tell us a little bit about your training history? Sure, sure. Uh, I was a non-traditional student, so I didn't go to college until my late 20s. I was really fortunate uh, to go to Columbia University in, in New York City. Uh, for undergrad, and I went straight into grad school at Rutgers, uh, where I did my PhD in clinical psychology. And from there, I went and interned at Mass General Hospital up in Boston. I stayed on there as a postdoctoral fellow, and now I'm on the faculty there. Wow. You started off uh, strong at Columbia and then just stayed, <laughs> stayed high. So, uh, and, and all in the Northeast, too. Yeah, well, you know, look, Columbia have a wonderful program for non-traditional students like myself. So, you know, I feel blessed to have been in, you know, living in New York at the time when I decided to make a big career change and, and change the trajectory of my professional life. And, you know, I, I was very lucky, I think, um, to have that opportunity afforded to me. There are many schools that... Uh, think about non-traditional students in that way. And that really, I think, paved the way for my trajectory into grad school. And as you guys know, getting into clinical psychology PhD programs is, is very challenging. They're very competitive. And you know, whatever you can do in college to get a leg up you know, helps. And I feel like I had a lot of great opportunities just by dint of being at Columbia that really helped me on my way. Yeah, and you worked with uh, somebody really interesting there, didn't you? I did. I did. My honors advisor, my psychology honors advisor was Carl Hart, uh, who's a, a well-known cannabis and methamphetamine researcher um, and, a, and a, a well-known writer as well on the topic of harm reduction and the war on drugs. He's done so much and uh, is such a voice. Uh, so that's that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great opportunity. I, you know, I volunteered to work in his lab when I was uh, probably in my probably my freshman year of college and I remember I remember meeting him and 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 telling him I was interested in working with him and I'd, I'd never volunteered to do research before so I didn't really know what to expect but I just assumed it would be a great thank you like we could use all the help we can get uh, but it really didn't go like that he actually said well you know what are your ideas what are you doing you know where are you going who are you like why should I give you a position at least this is how I remember it and <laughs> you know, he, he didn't have a position for me. Uh, so I started actually in a social psychology lab um, doing work, which wasn't closely related to my interests at the time, but it got me, uh, it was a foot in the door. It was an initial research experience. It helped me get a little bit of, of time in a lab. And that actually helped me get into the honors program, at which point uh, Carl had to take me because <laughs> I was asking as an honest student. Um, and <laughs> so I'd like to think as well, he was motivated at that point by the, the, the hard work I'd done, right. you know, in another lab. Um, but perhaps it was just because he had to take me as an honest student. But that was, a, it was a great experience. I worked with, um, with Dr. Hart for two years and, you know, I learned a lot about research and, you know, how to do research right and also some of the ways to do it, um, people do it wrong. Uh, and so I learned a lot about uh, research from him. And I also, I got involved in advocacy through my work with, with Carl as well. He was obviously, a, you know, he's a big voice in the harm reduction world and he's been a big um, 
uh, voice speaking out against the war on drugs and the, and the way we tried to prosecute our way out of a medical problem, sure. a substance use disorder in the United States. And so uh, I got involved as a student uh, with, in student activism around drug policy reform. And I still am wow. really interested in that stuff. It's not really the focus of my research now. But uh, I still, I've always been really interested in drug policy reform and I continue to be. An absolutely critical part, I think, of our jobs that often is neglected. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if we have a little bit of time, that might be good to hear about. Uh, and also, life lesson already, just keep trying. It sounds like the first time, you know, coming back around, you were able to sort of get, get into the lab that you wanted and, and it really set you up. <laughs> Really well. So, I mean, you worked with someone great at Rutgers too. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> worked with, worked with Dr. Yeah. Marsha Bates, right? And then, right. Then he went on to do internship and, and postdoctoral fellowship with Dr. John Kelly, um, each of which are, are a titan in their own respect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, just a, yeah, just kind so of a blue list. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, like, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants, don't mm-hmm. we? And, and mm-hmm. I really feel like that's been my experience. I've been very fortunate. Uh, to get where I am uh, in in this field, and uh, you know I've done it with a lot of help. Mm. Ton of help. Yeah. indeed, indeed. We yeah, all, nobody we does always it alone. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I, science is a team sport. I don't think that get. I don't think that's in the brochure, um, yeah. but I really think of it this way. And and you've done some really great work with some really great people along the way. And so um, today we were hoping to talk a little bit about some of the research that you have. Uh, I know you have your um, kind of multiple lines of research. Um, but today we were kind of hoping, um, you know, to focus a little bit on some of the work that you've done to understand, you know, emotional and psychophysiological factors that heighten addiction relapse, um, you know, with an aim of developing cutting edge interventions using wearable biosensors, um, which kind of has a lot of moving parts and sounds really interesting. And so I was hoping maybe you could just kind of give us a little bit of an overview of how you became interested in this working in this space. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, I really got interested in the, the brain body connection through my work with Marsha Bates at the Center of Alcohol Studies. Uh, now, I believe it's known as the Center of Alcohol and Drug Studies at Rutgers University, where I, I did my graduate training. So I actually applied to work with uh, Dr. Beth Epstein at Rutgers University mm-hmm. is a well-known clinical psychologist who at the time was doing some wonderful clinical trials of female-specific cognitive behavioral therapy for alcohol use disorder with Barbara McCready, who's now at yeah. the University of New Mexico. Uh, so I had applied to work with Dr. Epstein, right. but some funding fell through and she, though she'd planned on taking a graduate student that year, ended up not being able to take a student, but she did fortunately pass my application on to Marsha Bates, uh, who didn't really appear on the faculty bio page of, of people taking faculty. So I hadn't thought to apply to work with her, um, but I'm so glad to Dr. Epstein for affording my application because it turned out to be a wonderful fit. Uh, though I was certainly interested in clinical trials for substance use disorders and cognitive behavioral therapy. I've always been really interested in neuroscience. I've always been really interested in physiology. I think I would have been really happy as a a physician too, if I had taken a different path. And working with Marsha, I got to blend three different disciplines uh, or three different ways of thinking about the brain and body, neuroscience, physiology and and psychiatry or psychology. And so her work really sits at the intersection of these disciplines or these areas. And so I jumped into work with Marsha studying primarily the central autonomic network in the brain, which is, and I'm gonna talk more about what that is, the autonomic nervous system and how we regulate emotions not just in the brain, but also in the body and through brain, body, body, brain communication pathways. And these processes are critical for behavioral regulation, emotion regulation, but also importantly, in the context of studying substance use disorders, we believe these processes get off the rails in substance use disorders. It's not just a, a problem of the mind or the brain, but it's also a problem of the body. 
Mm -hmm. And that when these processes become dysregulated in substance use disorder, it can become even more difficult for people to self-regulate their emotions and their behaviors, which makes them even more reliant on substances to cope and even less likely to be able to change their behaviors. So really a central thesis of this work is that, you know, what we understand about the brain in addiction is super important. There's been decades of really important work done but we've tended to leave out the body. Mm. And when we bring the body into the conversation, it opens up new avenues for treatment. We don't throw out cognitive behavioral therapy, mutual health programs and medication. They can still be really, they are still really important first line interventions for substance use disorders. But what we're arguing for is, is, is interventions that can affect change at the level of the body bottom-up interventions, if you will, mm. affecting change in the body to affect change in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Um, I think so much of our work in psychology focuses on either behavioral change or thought change, but then, you know, this additional element of the body, it adds just another target um, that, you know, hopefully we can increase that, uh, the overall efficacy of our treatments. And I wonder if you could break it down a little bit more for us. So, what what's going on with this this brain body connection how how are, how is it communicating and then how like what's sort of the implication for its relationship with s- substance using behaviors so I always begin my talks at conferences with an overview of the central autonomic network and the autonomic nervous system and heart rate variability hmm. uh, which is really a biomarker for what's going on in the brain so I'll begin there. So the central autonomic network is a constellation of brain structures that includes areas like the the amygdala, the hypothalamus, a lot of the limbic structures in the brain that we know regulate emotion. But it's also the central autonomic network also uh, incorporates uh, cortical areas, and um, the prefrontal cortex, the insular cortex. And I think of the central autonomic network as really the emotion and behavior regulation seat of the brain. It includes both the limbic system, which is critical for our experience of emotion and appetitive behaviors, drive behaviors. Uh, these are the brain centers that uh, drive us to eat when we're hungry, to, to procreate, uh, to seek shelter and warmth when we're cold, but also the, the more evolutionarily new parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, insular cortex, which are really responsible for, uh, that allow us to abstract, to think, to reason, to solve problems, to think ahead, to inhibit impulsive urges, Hmm. uh, right? Because the limbic system throws up all kinds of impulsive urges, right? Uh, not, Not just for people with addiction, but for all of us. Right. And the prefrontal cortex is there to say, you know what? probably not a good idea to eat the rest of that chocolate cake. You know, you'll regret that tomorrow. Uh, Or, you know, in the case of substance use disorders, it's the ability to, to ride out a craving, for instance, and and play the tape through, as we sometimes say in recovery circles, to think about the distal consequences of that substance use. So the central autonomic network, uh, constellation of brain structure is super important for just day-to-day emotion and behavioral regulation. Uh, uh, we're in, always integrating information from the environment. We're incorporating it in the brain. Uh, we're bringing in memories and knowledge and, and insights and, and constantly like a computer manipulating a ton of information in our, in our workspace to make decisions, uh, sometimes outside of conscious awareness, how we want to behave or be in the world. Now, that's at the level of the brain, but the central autonomic network doesn't just... Uh, it's not just a system of brain structures. It's, it's, it also includes the autonomic nervous system, which you can think of as the wiring of the body. And I'm sure most of our listeners will have heard of the autonomic nervous system. It's really the constellation of, of nervous pathways and channels that connect the brain to the body. Every organ in the body is connected to the brain through the autonomic nervous system. Right? And so the autonomic nervous system is broken into two components. We think of the, as having two branches, one is the sympathetic 
nervous system, which is often colloquially referred to as the fight or flight branch. This is the branch that engages uh, when we have to take uh, um, uh, a defensive maneuver or where we feel attacked or threatened or stressed. The parasympathetic branch, which is often colloquially referred to as the rest and digest branch of the <laughs> autonomic nervous system, slows us down. It's the counterpoint. You can almost think of these two branches as, as being a teeter-totter. Mm. Now, it's not a one-for-one you know, linear correlation. It's not that when sympathetic arousal goes up, parasympathetic goes down and, and vice versa. They operate to their own tune. But generally speaking, we want these two branches of the autonomic nervous system to be working well together. Right. So the central autonomic network is connected to the body through the autonomic nervous system. But the story doesn't end there because then you've got communication from the body back up to the brain. Yeah. The brain needs to know what's going on in the body. Otherwise, it's just flying blind. So the body is constantly signaling back through those same nervous pathways to the brain information about physiological states. So, and a, and, and a great example of this is the relationship between the brain and the cardiovascular system. So the brain is constantly signaling to the heart through the sympathetic and parasympathetic pathways which synapse or connect to the heart to constantly increase or decrease heart rate based on situational demands right? and as heart rate is constantly being modulated to adapt to whatever we're doing in the environment as is our blood pressure now if the brain wasn't getting information back from the body about hmm. the heart's rhythm and blood pressure we'd be blowing blood vessels left, right, and center. Like blood pressure would be getting too high in some parts of the body. You would be, people would be having aneurysms and strokes. So it's really important that the body's getting the feedback, yeah. uh, that the brain is getting the feedback from the body. Right? And so we think in, in the case of psychopathology, and that includes addiction, but also the, the problems that travel with addiction, like anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, PTSD, and on and on, that these bidirectional communication pathway, bidirectional communication pathways are, are getting are, are offline, right? And that could be a, in part a problem at the level of the brain and the signaling and the central autonomic network and the brain structures not communicating effectively with one another. It could be the 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 pathways descending into the body could be disrupted for one reason or another. Think physiological toxicity associated with alcohol. But also the feedback mechanism, mm. in the case of the cardiovascular system, that's the baroreflex mechanism, um, can also be desensitized. And so you see a disruption of the bidirectional circuit, this communication pathway. And obviously, as I said in the beginning of my talk, when we become more and more dysregulated physiologically as well as psychologically and emotionally, the more if we have a substance use disorder, we're inclined to rely on alcohol or other drugs to cope because it, that at some level has worked for us in the past. And so that's often the default we go back to, even though we know it's not a very good long-term solution, mm. we often do get short-term relief from alcohol and other drugs when we're in emotional pain. But that uh, behavior gets further and further ingrained. It gets harder and harder for folks to change. And the more and more mm. we rely on substances to cope, the harder and harder it is to change our behaviors and as well our other more effective ways of coping uh, atrophy i think we, mm -hmm. we we forget other more effective ways of coping as well mm. that that's all really it sounds like there's a lot of places where something could feasibly go wrong um <laughs> and i and i actually have like a lot of reactions to this um so at risk of derailing us because i'm not sure how associated this is and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but where does, uh, or, or what's the relationship between these systems and the HPA axis? Um, right. So that's number one. Number two, so would, would some of these um, pathways be the sort of hypothesized uh, biological uh, mechanism for th things like drinking to cope um, in terms of the self-medication hypothesis or the negative reinforcement hypothesis. Right. So I, I'm glad you mentioned the HPA axis because this is really important. And for those who don't know, this is really the, 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 the stress 
uh, hormone system in the body. Now, a certain amount of stress hormones are unnecessary, right? I, I think there's a bit of a, 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 a myth that, you know, you know stress is, is a bad thing. I mean, it, you know, anything can be a bad thing if we experience too much of it, and stress is certainly no different. But, but a, a certain amount of stress is necessary for our survival. If you put a human being in a completely sensory deprived environment for a day or two, they begin to hallucinate. Mm -hmm. Our regulatory, regulatory systems in the mind begin to decouple. Right? So we need stimulation from the environment. We need stresses. Uh, we also need to be able to buffer them effectively. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the case of substance use disorders, we see a hyper, um, we can often see a ramping up in HPA access, but also, interestingly, in chronic substance use, we can see a blunting of that system eventually as well. Hmm. So there can be an initial reactivity, say, to heavy alcohol use, but ultimately that chronic heavy alcohol use can start to impair the system so that it can become so underactivated, yeah. surprisingly enough. Wow. And, this, and the same is true at the level of the cardiovascular system. I mentioned heart rate variability before. And I want to circle back to that because this is really a biomarker for what's going on in the brain. I mentioned before that the, the heart is duly innovated or receives input from both the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches in the autonomic nervous system. So both these branches are constantly signaling to the heart to tell it to speed up or slow down. It's a little more complicated than that, but you can basically <laughs> think about it as a, you know, the heart is a muscle, it's a mechanism, a machine, it's got two sources of electrical uh, innovation coming into it, one telling it to speed up and one telling it to slow down. So heart rate is not static, it's not constant. Now, when I was growing up, I, I, I remember I think my mother taught me when I was very young how to measure my pulse, um, before she became a clinical psychologist, she was a nurse. So, there, you know, there was always a stethoscope around and you know, I learned to take my pulse. And, and I remember very, at a very young age, noticing that my heart rhythm was not regular hmm. and thinking, shit, that can't be good. That should get this that, checked that, out. <laughs> yeah. And but what I've learned through doing this work is actually a, a regular heart rhythm you know, at least in terms of, you know, maybe one beat a second, right. it's not actually a healthy heart rhythm. Heart rate is co constantly varying and changing in response to physiological and psychological stresses. Just, uh, just you know, our day-to-day -day activities, mm. um, getting up and moving around, uh, running an errand, having a conversation. The heart rate is constantly being modulated by the brain by the central autonomic network through the autonomic nervous system to respond to whatever's arising in our day-to-day -day lives. So heart rate variability at higher levels of variability are actually indicative of health. And what we see in chronic disease states, both physiological mm. and psychological, is reduced heart rate variability. And this is pretty consistent across disorders, whether you're talking physiological diseases or psychological conditions like addiction, substance use mm. disorder, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, you see a loss of biobehavioral flexibility. Right? And so we think of heart rate variability as a biomarker for what's going on in the brain that can be fairly easily measured in the same way some researchers measure stress hormones. Because what's going on in the stress hormone system is also a biomarker for what's going on mm. in the central autonomic network and the brain, mm. right? So these, these biomarkers give us relatively low-cost, easy-to-access ways of determining what's going on in the central autonomic network. Obviously, we can also put people in a scanner. We can do functional magnetic resonance imaging and, and, and see activation in brain areas that we know are implicated in the central autonomic network. So we can do very cool Q-reactivity paradigms. Perhaps we put somebody in a scanner who has a substance use disorder, show them pictures of uh, the primary substance that they use and, and monitor the brain reactivity to those stimuli. But that's not very good if you're interested in ambulatory research, like mm. studying people in real time, yeah. which is something I'm really interested in. And it's also not, not very helpful to you if you don't have a massive budget and access <laughs> to an fMRI scanner, right? which by the way, are not cheap. You know, so, so as researchers, if we can find more accessible, 
easier to measure biomarkers that we can measure fairly non-invasively, uh, we want to go after those. And so heart rate variability is a, is a really useful tool for us to study as psychophysiologists. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think it's two parts, right, that stand out to me. So one is, you know, the idea that a person's heart rate variability as a biomarker, right, um, kind of develops in an acquired way or um, as a function of, you know, substance use disorder, for instance, right? Like, you know, if you think about like the allostasis model of addiction, which says that, you know, like through chronic overstimulation of the reward centers in your brain, your body tries to compensate with that yeah. by releasing stress hormones to downregulate the reward, right? Which is cortisol, the stress hormone we're talking about here, right? So there's a chronic amount of a very specific agent in your body that's going to change your heart rate at the trait level, I guess, in some way, right? But also you can use it then as a momentary signal of, of, of distress, I guess, right? So like if a person's craving or if they're getting emotionally upset or dysregulated in some meaningful way, the, the way that their body responds to that reads out in their heart rate. And so you can kind of both detect people who have acquired you know, substance use disorder, or other types of psychopathology, but also momentarily monitor shifts in states of interest uh, so that you could potentially intervene. Absolutely. And th this is an area I'm taking my research into now. I, one of the things we know about people in early recovery from addiction is that they typically or often have uh, limited self-awareness of their affective or emotional states. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean, you know, folks who are early in recovery are disconnected from negative affect and, and their feelings altogether, right? People will often endorse high levels of anxiety, stress, craving, but they often have a pin, they have often have trouble identifying or pinpointing exactly what they're feeling. Like this idea of a, like alexithymia, like having difficulty identifying the emotions we're experiencing. But also sometimes people don't identify the stress as stress. I know as a clinical psychologist sitting with patients that folks will often endorse craving and not necessarily know where that's coming from. And when we dig into that a little bit and say, well, well, what's going on? Where are we at? What's going on in your life? We often identify a lot of significant stresses that are almost certainly leading to craving. So outside of conscious awareness, their brain has completely skipped awareness of the stress and it's gone straight to, this is how I know I get relief. Yeah. You know, you know, let's get some alcohol. Let's get another substance. It's going to give us that relief. So it's almost like uh, for the individual, there isn't necessarily the subjective identification of stress, but there is a lot of negative affect associated with craving. So what if we had interventions that could monitor people's physiological arousal, their autonomic arousal using heart rate variability? We could identify stress states in real time and perhaps using what we call just-in-time interventions, we could prompt that individual based on the objective biological data that we're uh, collecting from what we're observing in the physiological, in the autonomic nervous system. We could present information that could support recovery, prevent relapse, let's say through smartphone apps. Uh, so that's an area of research I'm really interested in in right now. And what would you uh, prompt them to do, you think, in the moment there? I know you've done uh, some intervention development in this space too. And so I was wondering maybe if you could tell, walk us through um, that little component of it. Or what that would look like. Yeah. Right. So there's a number of, there's a couple of apps I really like uh, in the market, uh, relapse prevention apps. Um, one of them is Vivi Health, and I'm on the scientific uh, advisory board for them, so full disclosure. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful app that uh, helps individuals um, connect with their recovery supports. It helps them self-monitor their effective states uh, using ecological momentary assessment. It prompts folks to do breathing exercises, to do meditations has a lot of resources baked into the app. We often talk about these as a, as a therapist in the pocket. Another great app I, I really, really like is uh, HS, 
which comes out of the University of Wisconsin, another great product that's been around for some time. So these, these apps are wonderful. I'm not saying they should replace first-line treatments like CBT or mutual health programs, which are also really effective for the treatment or addressing substance use disorder, but these can be additional tools. Now, the problem with these apps is folks don't always remember to use them. Right. Part of the problem in addiction, and especially in early recovery, is the peculiar mental blind spots that folks find themselves in. And, and you're both clinicians, and I'm, I'm sure any other people who work clinically with people with addiction can identify with this. Like we can spend weeks and weeks and weeks teaching a patient skills to prevent relapse, and yet lapses to substance use happen. And often a patient will come back and say, I don't know what happened, doc. I, I was doing really well. You know, I felt like I had a good handle on the skills we've been talking about. And just in that moment, I, I don't know what, I wasn't thinking. It just out of nowhere, I just had this intense urge. And the next thing I knew, I had a drink in my hand. And it's like, I, I'm not even sure how it happened. So, you know, an app's not that helpful in that context. Mm. But if we had a, a biomonitor, like a smartwatch, that was monitoring people's heart rate variability and could identify the biosignatures of craving or stress that could have prompted them through the app to engage in a relapse prevention strategy, right? Then we're getting out in front of the blind spot. Mm. That's why we call these just-in-time interventions. It's mm -hmm. sort of the idea like we can, we can sense risk for a patient before they're aware of the risk and prompt them to do something about it. Yeah, I think that's, that's I think, really innovative, right? And being able to help a person, right? In the, that's what I see all the time. And it's not, it's not linked to any specific population outside of, you know, individuals with substance use disorder, perhaps, but like I've seen it in teens and adults, right? They'll be mm -hmm. like, I'm like, what happened? And like, I don't even know. It's like, that's not how time works, but it's how their experience <laughs> of time worked in that moment, right? Like all these right. automatic systems, you know, these reflexive systems kicked in and next thing they know, you know, they're in, in a bad way, in a bad situation. Right. And yeah. so implementation is really challenging. And so finding an, like, I can't be with them all the time. Right. The way I like That's to think right. of just a time interventions is like, if you can't always come to my office when you're uh, in a risky moment, like, could we bring the office to you so that they were there in the risky moment? Right. And so like um, the problem with other you know, app monitoring, right. Is it all requires user input, right. Right. To, to generate implementation of interventions. Right. Yeah. However, if this was passively sensing it and then able to then deploy, right. Like, Hey, an alert. You know, yeah, yeah. Are you okay? Like, you know, maybe like, you know, like you're rock climbing or something and like, it's no big deal. Right. You know, but maybe you're not. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you know, just being able to check in with yourself in those particular situations, right. Uh, allows for, you know, really opportune skill deployment in real time, in real life situations, which is where people use, right. Like um, I can all say with almost hundred percent certainty, people don't use in my office. Right. But <laughs> they use out there in the world, which is where the skill, but we're talking about all the skills in my office. Right. And that's so right. like being able to take those things out there is really the challenge. And it's, so this really presents an opportunity uh, or a conduit by which to to link those two things meaningfully, it yeah. sounds like. Precisely. We can shore up the blind spots. And, you know, when we're when, when folks are experiencing significant emotional distress, often, you know, often we're flooded in those states where. Yeah. Totally. Affectively, emotionally, and physiologically flooded. Our autonomic nervous system is in fight or flight response. The sympathetic branch is engaged, and our rational mind, our logical mind, is offline. Yeah. Yeah. Our emotion mind takes over. And when emotion mind takes over, we're going to go for relief, even if that's not, in, even if at another level, that's not something that's going to be in our best interest, like substance use. No, that's a great point. Yeah. There's a really great study by Mark Moraven that shows that mood repair takes priority almost over all other goals in, in the moment when a person feels uh, emotionally dysregulated. And that's the case, right? Like, you know, if you just think about somebody maybe um, who's listening, who's ever been in like a physical altercation or some kind of uh, stressful interpersonal conflict, usually not thinking about like what you're going to do study that test later or like going to have for dinner, right? <laughs> like that's not happening, right? Like only the most immediate things 
are in your awareness, right? And your body turns off all the systems related to like distal goal setting, right? Like all that stuff gets turned off. It's all gas, no break. And, exactly. And, um, <laughs> and so it's easy to get in a bad way, especially when you have a really crystallized set of, you know, solutions for that, that are really effective in the immediate, um, especially on your nervous system, right? Like alcohol does have an um, acute immediate effect on the autonomic nervous system, right? It it has some, you know, it's not as straightforward on your emotion systems, right? But, Mm -hmm. but it does have a very clear effect on your biological systems, right? um, Which will likely downregulate all the specific things that are cueing your brain that corrective action is required. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. You know, uh, when we when we drink alcohol, we actually see acute increases in heart rate, right? And, and Sam, you were talking about this before. Chronically, it's a different story. But mm. when we ingest alcohol, we see acute increases in heart rate, typically, and a loss of heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because, you know, typically heart rate variability does go down as heart rate increases right right heart rate variability is really useful when you're trying to have a conversation but if you're trying to run a half marathon like it's less important you want your heart rate up there and and blood circulating through the body right but it's interesting in in acute acute um in acute alcohol intoxication we are seeing reductions in heart rate variability and it's interesting we also lose behavioral flexibility when we're intoxicated, we lose our capacity to um, mm. inhibit impulses, right, at the level of the brain and body. So there's, there's, you know, obviously the the there's effects of alcohol at the level of the synapse and how alcohol affects neurotransmitter systems in the brain, particularly the glutamatergic system and and the GABAergic receptors and and systems, uh, but also the dopaminergic system. And alcohol is a small molecule, right? It's lipid soluble. It goes everywhere in the body. It also destabilizes the phospholipid bilayer itself. So all cells have a, a wall. And for neurons, cell wall integrity is critical. And alcohol destabilizes cell wall integrity, which makes it harder for action potentials to be generated mm. on time. It's harder for neurons to reset, uh, but also at the level of physiology, right? You know, you're, you're, you're ingesting a substance that at higher doses is really toxic to all cells in the body, the cardiovascular system. And, and because it's lipid soluble, alcohol diffuses into every cell in the body. When you ingest it, it doesn't just circulate through uh, the um, the vascular system, mm. right? So, you know, I look, alcohol in moderation can actually, has been shown to prove some health benefits. I mean, there's a bit of a mixed literature, but, you know, but at, certainly at higher doses, alcohol is causes a lot of problems in the brain and the body, uh, more than really any other substance people use. Yet it is one of the most commonly used yeah. substances, <laughs> the legal which is this one. real paradoxical, everything we're talking about here has this interesting paradoxical <laughs> thing, right? Like it, it changes heart rate in a specific way, but also decreases heart rate variability, right? Mm-hmm. And I know you've done some work on heart rate variability interventions themselves, like a biofeedback intervention to help individuals with, uh, with substance use disorders you know, see the improvements that they're hoping for. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about um, how that works, um, a little bit about how it's delivered, efficacy, so forth. Sure, Sean, you're referring to heart rate variability biofeedback here, uh, which I I first learned about when I was in graduate school working with Marsha Bates. And uh, through her lab, you know, I had the privilege of being co-mentored by uh, a researcher called Evgeny Vashilo, who we sadly lost earlier mm. this year to cancer. Uh, and Evgeny Vashilo, along with uh, Paul Lehrer, who's also at Rutgers at the Robert Johnson School of Medicine, had developed heart rate variability biofeedback in the very early 2000s. And this stems from work that Evgeny was doing in the 80s and 90s in the Soviet Union before he came to the United mm. States. And also some work Paul Lehrer was doing in the United States. And they had a chance meeting 
in I think in the late 80s in in Russia before the Soviet Union collapsed and Lara didn't really know anything about uh, Vishilo's research and vice versa because Evgeny was essentially behind the Iron Curtain mm. um, uh, but they got together and they realized they'd both been working on some of these some of these problems they were both interested they were both physiologists and and interested in, in mental health and um, physiological regulatory systems that influence the brain and behavior. And so they developed this intervention, which is a, at its core, a breathing practice that involves breathing at special frequencies that stimulate big changes in the cardiovascular system. So this comes back to heart rate variance. And remember I said a variable heart rate is a healthy heart rate. And what I didn't mention was that heart rhythm, not only is it, is it regulated by the central autonomic network, it's in part also regulated by the pulmonary system. So when you breathe in, your heart rate increases slightly, and when you breathe out, it decreases slightly. This is a phenomenon called the respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Now, there's a lot of theories about why we might have the respiratory sinus arrhythmia, why we may have evolved with it, but it's thought that it helps with oxygenation of the blood and ergo the body. It seems to help us dump CO2 and it probably reduces wear and tear on the heart. I mean, it makes sense that when you breathe in, you've got air in your lungs, you wanna get as much blood through the lungs as possible, pick up as much oxygen as you can, dump as much CO2. But then when you breathe out and there's less air in the lungs, Maybe you can save a little bit of uh, wear and tear on your heart by slowing it down. So your heart rate's always changing in response to the breath. And in fact, you know, you could do this and your folks at home can, you know, if they can feel their pulse in their wrist and take a few deep, slow breaths, you'll notice, you know, for most people, a significant increase in heart rate as you breathe in and it'll decrease as you breathe out. So in heart rate variability by a feedback, we're taking advantage of the respiratory sinus arrhythmia. We can't consciously change our heart rhythm, but we can consciously control and change our breath. And by doing that, we can affect changes in the cardiovascular system. So in heart rate variability by a feedback, we usually hook somebody up to an electrocardiogram or other kind of heart rate sensor. We display for them on a computer screen in front of them their heart rate variability, which is essentially drawn on the computer as a line. And we also put a respiratory sensor on them as well, which measures their inhalations and exhalations. And that's also displayed as a separate line on the computer in front of them. And so what we want to do is breathe at about six breaths per minute. So it's four seconds in, usually through the nose, six seconds out, typically through the mouth, four in, six out, when we breathe at that frequency, it essentially stimulates the respiratory sinus arrhythmia through a mechanism that I mentioned earlier, the baroreflex, which is the feedback loop that sends information from the cardiovascular system back to the brain. And it causes these big oscillations in heart rate variability to happen. And not only that, we see respiration and heart rate variability oscillating in harmony. But there's more to it because if you look at dynamic blood pressure, that also starts oscillating at the same frequency. And recently, Marsha Bates and her team uh, at Rutgers also showed that if you scan the brains of people who are doing six breaths per minute breathing or this heart rate variability biofeedback, not only are you seeing uh, coherence in the oscillations between respiration, heart rate variability, and blood pressure variability, neurons start firing in, at the same frequency. Mm. So it's mm. almost like all the systems in the brain and the body line up and are firing together in harmony. Now, why do we care about that? Well, when you do this practice with people consistently, when they do this each day, for about 10 to 15 minutes, you can see significant and clinically meaningful reductions in anxiety, depression, and in folks with substance use disorders, craving. Mm. Now, 
We don't know ex the exact mechanism of change here. Because what's interesting, even though we're affecting acute changes in heart rate variability, we're increasing heart rate variability as people practice, we don't necessarily see chronic changes in heart rate variability, right? Early in, you know, early, early theorists thought that maybe that was the mechanism, that was the secret source, like you were increasing heart rate variability acutely, and that mm. would cause chronic increases in heart rate variability, which would increase biobehavioral flexibility, emotional flexibility, and that would be that would be the benefit for people. But we often see that people improve clinically in terms of negative affects and, and, and states like craving and, and improvements in behaviors associated with psychopathology um, without chronic increases in heart rate variability. So something's happening in that moment. Mm. Systems are being tuned up. I sometimes think of it, you know, perhaps we're calibrating the brain, tuning it up in a, in a way that, you know, if people, you know, if, ever worked on old cars with carburetors, like, you, you know, you, you got to get the right mix of, of gas and air. And so, you know, we're not, we're not sure exactly what's happening, mm. but we, we have shown now consistently across multiple clinical trials that this helps people across a range of disorders, substance use disorder, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, and PTSD. There's work ongoing now. Uh, uh, people like Teresa Lairo, also at Rutgers, mm. Uh, on heart rate variability biofeedback for smoking cessation, mm. which to me seems like a natural fit. Some people have actually suggested that in part the stress relief that people experience when smoking is not a yeah. function of the nicotine, but they're breathing at but about breathing, six breaths yeah. per minute. Yeah. They're breathing at resonance frequency. Right? So, so there's potentially a, a physiological benefit to smoking, not the actual inhalation of the smoke itself, but that it slows down people's breath and that right. might be causing a relaxation response that uh, people are relying on. Right? So there's you know, a lot of work ongoing. You know, one, of the, one of the limitations of heart rate variability five feedback is that good luck trying to find a provider who can teach you this, hmm. yeah. right? especially if you're in a remote area, especially if you're an underserved person. And the equipment can be expensive, right? Although it's come down a lot in recent years. And in fact, now there's some apps you can you know, download to your phone that allow you to do heart rate variability by feedback virtually for free. But at the end of the day, this is a breathing practice. Yeah, exactly. So that if people, yeah. if people can learn the breathing practice, then ultimately it's a powerful tool that we have anytime, anywhere that's free for us to use. The interesting thing is, you know, we see chronic benefits of heart rate variability biofeedback for people with psychological conditions, but also, and this is anecdotal, but I've observed in the clinical trials that I've run with people with substance use disorder, that people will often use the breathing practice acutely to manage spikes in stress and anxiety. Yeah. I remember vividly like the first, the second clinical trial I did was with um, uh, students at Rutgers. This is when I was in grad school who were in Rutgers recovery housing. So these were young adults in a, often early addiction recovery. And we were doing a eight week course of heart rate variability biofeedback with these folks. And there was one, one of the participants, he said, you know, I get panic attacks. They're really, really bad. And I felt like I was going to have a panic attack the other day. I was on the bus and it was hot and claustrophobic and it was crowded and we were stuck in traffic. And I just, I could feel it. I could feel it coming on. But, you know, like I could feel my heart rate starting to go up. I was starting to get flushed. I, you know, I, I just knew it was coming. I knew the signs. He said, but I thought about the breathing practice. And he said, I didn't have my, my device on me, my practice device, but I remembered I could do the breathing practice and I remembered the pacing. And I just did a few minutes of the breathing and I didn't have a panic attack. It didn't escalate. And I realized that when I first feel a panic attack coming on, I could go to this breathing practice and I can control it. Yeah. And in fact, by the end of the eight week, uh, our eight week time together in the context of the study, he'd had another episode right before a big final exam where he noticed that he was about to have a panic attack. And he said, I did the breathing practice and I was okay. 
Right. So when I teach this to my patients, I encourage them to practice daily, but I also encourage them to use the intervention strategically to regulate emotions, intense affect in the moment as well. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I was, I was sort of going in the same direction there um, when I'm starting to you know, just be curious about the mechanism here. Um, wondering if, you know, stress and, and, you know, anything that activates the, the sympathetic nervous system, I mean, it feels pretty bad most of the time. And um, a lot of times your thoughts start racing. Um, and, and, you know, these are just sort of the, uh, the markers of, of anxiety. And, and when you, uh-huh. when you do this breathing exercise, I, I, I've done it before. Um, I've, I've taught people in my clinical work, it feels really good. Um, yeah. And so I, I can imagine that, you know, there is just some level of, you know, um, you know, learning in a, in a cognitive way, but also just behavioral reinforcement of, you know, when these things start to come up, learning that this way of breathing actually reduced some of that pain and it reduced the unpleasant feeling um, in times when maybe you hadn't planned on doing that, but, but you now have learned that, that it's going to be really effective. I mean, and, and obviously it's on to something because really all of our treatments in psychology now have some form uh, of breathing as, as uh, a means yeah. of, you know, reducing anxiety or stress. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can, I think we can break the vicious cycle of panic. If we feel like we have a control over panic symptoms when they arise it empowers the individual and it reduces the likelihood of subsequent panic attacks. And I love these kinds of interventions because they're simple and concrete and you don't have to wrap your head around it. It's it's simply breathing at a specific frequency. There's nothing to get. It's not complicated and it has a profound effect. So DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, in the last um, update of the manual, incorporated six breaths per minute breathing. They don't mm-hmm. frame it as heart rate variability biofeedback, but you don't need the biofeedback. Right. I mean, it's 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 cool to learn it when you can see your physiology changing on a screen in front of you. That's much more reinforcing. But at the right. end of the day, you can learn the breathing practice. Now, everybody's a little bit different. Like it's four seconds in, six seconds out on average across humans. Right. But some people have a you know, everybody has a slightly different resonance frequency. So for some people, it's going to be three in and five out. And for some people, it's a little bit longer. So they might want to do four in and seven out. So, you know, finding what works for you, if you don't have the luxury of being able to go to, you know, uh, uh, somebody who can do a formal assessment and and identify your resonance yeah. frequency like we can in the lab or the clinic, um, you can play around with the breathing practice. You can still and do it. And make it your own. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's just like widely disseminable, right? Like, like you live in the rural area of the country, you live in an urban area, you have low access to healthcare, you have high means, like any of these things. And it doesn't take long. You're not asking for like an hour long thing, right? Like 15 nope. minutes a day, right? And then, you know, as needed in the in the moment, right? And that's right. Uh, that's and right. I think that's that really accessible. is so important that it's like everybody I've ever met breathes. <laughs> I haven't met anybody who doesn't right. breathe. Um, That's right. They don't last alive. Who was alive? Yeah. yeah. You know, like we I've met, I've encountered people when we both weren't breathing, like we we're underwater or whatever, but we like eventually return. In general. Yeah. yeah in general. Right. Yeah. And so like, there's, this is like something you already do, mm, right? Yeah. That's like, there's like a beautiful elegance in its simplicity that like, right. like everybody does this. I'm just asking you to do this thing that is normally outside of your awareness. I want you to bring it into awareness and happen Mm -hmm. and act upon it purposefully because we know it has this, you know, connection to all these systems in our body that we usually don't think of as things that we have control over, like Mm -hmm. our emotion systems. You know, when I teach uh, clinically this skill, I'll be like, I want you to change your emotions right now on purpose Right. And very few people know how to do that. Right. Like, especially the people who are coming to work with me and, um, but I can affect change on my breathing, which has these downstream effects on, you know, emotion systems and on, um, overall self-control so forth and so on. And so I think it's really, um, something that is Mm. just so, so it's like, hits the sweet spot of like accessible, right. Like 
doesn't require a lot of heavy lifting on a person to learn. You already do this yeah. and all those types mm-hmm. of things. And so um, I really applaud you for this work. And, and I'm curious a little bit about what you think the future of this, of this space is like, what do we, what needs to be done? Yeah. What, what next? Well, I alluded to this before, but you know, I, I've always been concerned about the accessibility and scalability of this intervention. It's hard to access and sure there'd be, you know, now we have apps and, uh, but if you want to do the biofeedback piece, like that's actually really hard to access. Yeah. And I think that's also the hook for a lot of people as well, because that really is what makes the effects of the breathing practice tangible. Right. And that's going to, that's, mm. that's going to be the driver of subsequent practice. Yeah. And so sense. now though, there are some very cool developments out in the field, out in the world. Uh, one device I'm, I'm, really liking right now is uh, called LEAF, L-I-E-F, and uh, it's uh, out of San Francisco. And it's uh, essentially a, a, a electrocardiogram bio patch, very lightweight that you just wear on your abdomen and it chronically monitors your ECG waveform and heart rate variability. Just in the background, the battery lasts all day. It's very, very low profile device. So you wear it under your shirt, you can't see it. And it's monitoring your heart rate variability. And when it notices your heart rate variability getting low in the absence of movement, so it's controlling for movement, right? So if you're just mm. running and your heart rate's mm. increasing, your heart rate variability is right. down, it knows you're probably running. So it's not going to like prompt you. But if you're not moving and it sees your heart rate variability decrease significantly, it taps you using haptics and guides you Hmm. to do a few minutes of breathe Hmm. HRV biofeedback using haptics. Now it also has a smartphone app that, you know, can visually guide the breathing practice, but in this way, it's, it's providing a way to practice heart rate variability biofeedback, but it's also a just in time intervention. Yeah. So before I talk about just in time interventions where we might identify stress from, uh, you know, autonomic biosignatures, and we might deliver an intervention or a prompt through an app that encourages people to, you know, uh, call their, you know, support network or, or do a meditation. In this instance, the just-in-time intervention is to do a brief burst of pace breathing of biofeedback mm. to get heart rate variability back up and to help re-regulate in the moment so these kinds of devices which are fairly low cost and you can you get a subscription and it also has a like a biofeedback coach you can access and schedule appointments with to just to to help you know because this can be a bit bit tricky to learn on one's own i think really has the potential to scale this kind of intervention up because here's a device you can essentially purchase online that does what it's supposed to do it's also a just-in-time intervention, which is the next extension of the work I've been doing. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I'm excited about these kinds of products that are arising in the private sector that I think can make this more accessible to people in the community. Absolutely. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, if the, if the, if the theorized mechanism is that people start to use these breathing techniques in the moments where they most need them then the critical missing variable is, is these prompts. And so you're doing this work. Um, it, it seems like there are, there are some other people doing this work and, and it's really exciting to see um, what, you know, what might be coming in the next five to 10 years and what might be at, what, what, what might be possible. Um, so um, thank you so much, um, Dr. Eddie, for, for joining us today. Uh, we, we've really enjoyed it. And, and if you're listening to this, maybe just, uh, you know, uh, after this episode, take a minute and just do the, uh, six breaths a minute exercise for a little while, just see how it feels. Um, but before we let you go, we're wondering if you could, um, walk through a few take home messages, um, for our, for our listeners. And is that all right? Absolutely. Great. So I'm going to get us started here. Um, so what do you think the take home message is for people, um, in recovery, uh, from a substance use disorder or for people just more generally interested in making a change? Okay. Well, I think first line treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, mutual help programs and, and medications can be a very, very effective treatments for people with substance use disorders, or even people who just want to reduce their substance use. Uh, but these approaches typically don't directly address these brain body deficits that we've been talking about today. 
that can undermine our ability to self-regulate our emotions and behaviors. So I think take a look at interventions like heart rate variability biofeedback and even meditation and yoga, which can embody some of these same principles and ideas to potentially think about addressing these problems from the body up. Yeah. What would you say to practitioners listening? I guess my advice would be similar to that for, for patients and, and people who identify as, as um, being in recovery or seeking recovery from substance use disorders or even people looking to reduce their, their substance use. There's a lot of value in thinking outside the, the brain box and attacking the problem of addiction and related problems like anxiety and depression from the body up with interventions like heart rate variability, biofeedback and exercise and yoga and meditation. What, uh, what would your take home message be for policymakers? You know, I think we really need to change the culture around insurance reimbursement in the United States to be more inclusive <laughs> of interventions that fall outside of the rubric yeah. of traditional care. So, you know, we're doing a better job in the United States of, of ensuring people through the Affordable Care Act get uh, reimbursed for behavioral, cognitive and behavioral interventions, for therapy, for talk therapy. So that's, that's a huge move forward. But I think allowing providers to bill insurance for treatments like biofeedback and other app-based recovery mm. support services is going to be really, really critical. And I think also allowing individuals to get reimbursed uh, from their insurance for costs of uh, exercising, gym memberships, meditation, mm classes you know that's a more of a holistic approach to well-being and care and these kinds of changes in insurance policy really are only ever going to come about uh with legislation yeah right because the insurance companies aren't necessarily going to change unless there's they need to they have to and i think there is benefit to the insurance companies from changing because i think in the long run by supporting these kinds of interventions they're actually going to reduce their costs because yeah. you're going to see better recovery outcomes. But I think also in the short term, sometimes it takes legislation to force the hand of, of insurance companies to mm. encourage them to reimburse for these kinds of non-traditional interventions. Well, that's yeah. an excellent point. Yeah. What would you say um, the take-home message is for underserved populations? I think it gets back to your point before, Noah, about accessibility of care and, and, and treatment. To, now, Traditional treatments like therapy and uh, uh, medications can be expensive and hard to access, especially if you live in a remote area. So technology-based interventions can be really powerful tools. Uh, if if that's uh, if you're if you're having trouble with access to traditional forms of care. Now, at the same time, the flip side of that, technology-based interventions can be pretty expensive, right? But at the end of the day. Right? We're talking about a breathing practice here, right? With heart mm -hmm. rate variability, biofeedback. Anyone can practice it anytime, anywhere. There aren't really any aversive side effects. Like we're, we feel pretty safe about people practicing this uh, practice, even if they, they have fairly complicated medical histories. But there's also free relapse prevention apps out there. Um, I, I think HS might have a free version of their relapse prevention app. I know Vivi Health do, that people can download and use for free. You know, so that's not going to replace first-line treatments, right? That's not going to replace mutual health programs, which can be really beneficial, but it's something, right? It's another tool in people's toolbox that they can use. Uh, and as well, you know, like there's, there's some really exciting things happening in virtual reality. I didn't talk about that today, mm. uh, but there's some really cool work going on in that domain as well with, with uh, mutual help meetings uh, going on in virtual reality and, and even telehealth and telemedicine that's been offered through virtual reality and, and through Zoom, I think can really increase access to care. Well, thank you so much for this excellent episode. It's been really enlightening to me. I've learned so much. Um, and before I let you go, just one last question. Um, so uh, you've had a really successful career. Um, you've done a lot of cool stuff. You got a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline. And do you have any advice for trainees out there um, sure. on, on how, how to follow in your footsteps, I guess? <laughs> 
I guess my advice would be to back yourself and, and stay the course. Many times in, in college and even a few times in grad school, I, I questioned how I was ever going to get through some difficult class or project thinking, you know, this is surely the, the hurdle that's going to completely derail my dream of becoming a clinical psychologist. And you know, I learned that you know, school training, it's 90% about showing up and especially when things get tough. And so I decided fairly early in my university to career to take things one day at a time and ask for help when I needed it and, and just to keep hmm. showing up. And, and even now as, as faculty, I live by that mantra. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you so much for just a really amazing episode and uh, for taking some time to join us. Thanks for having me. Next time on the Addiction Psychologist podcast, we're going to have Dr. Barbara McCready join us. That's right. The legend. Dr. McCready is a professor emerita of psychology at the University of New Mexico, and she will be talking to us about her groundbreaking work on alcohol-focused behavioral couples therapy. Do not miss this episode.